Welcome to Reading Between the Lines, the People's Friends story podcast in association with the Odd Fellows. Each episode, a few of us from the Friend team, along with some special guests, will delve into our archives to find a story to read, and then we'll all sit down for a wee chat about it. Make yourself a cup of tea, pull up a chair, and come join us. This episode, we'll be reading Caroline Wickham by Herbert Jameson which was first published in The People's Friend in April 1910. This story will be read for you by Marion McGivern from The Friend Features Team. Caroline Wickham sat in his well-furnished study, chewing the cud of pleasant reflection. You have guessed that Caroline Wickham was a mere man, and you are right that it was the secret pen name of a gentleman known to his intimates as John Smith. Now, a man called John Smith may succeed as a baker, or as a grocer, or even as a stockbroker, but as a novelist, no, the thing is impossible. No one wants to read a novel by an untried hand with such a name on the cover, The contents must be, of course, bold commonplace. Even if a publisher sufficiently venturesome to publish a book by a new author called John Smith were found, the critics to a man would pour hopeless ridicule upon it. That was young Smith's dilemma, and he got out of it by inventing Caroline Wickham. Feminine novelists frequently adopt masculine pseudonyms. Why should, for once in the history of literature, a masculine author not turn the tables by assuming a feminine nom de plume? The idea was humorous, novel, and if it could be worked without detracting from his manhood, it was decided. And Mr Smith sat in that well-furnished study, chuckling over his success. Puppets at large was going into edition after edition. Caroline Wickham had come and conquered, and her inventor was a supremely happy man. The brand new furniture, reflecting at the moment his joyful face, had all been purchased with the proceeds of his publisher's first cheque. A book of press cuttings was at Smith's elbow. Here is a sample of the titbits which he occasionally rolled around his tongue. Miss Wickham has a vein of almost masculine humour. It is long since we have read a novel written by a woman that has so much amused us. This is a problem novel, but satire, wit and humour are here in plenty. Miss, or is it Mrs, Wickham, will go far. The sarcasm is delicious. The greatness of the book lies in the fact that it was written by a woman. A little fly in the ointment, that last sentence, but still... A tap at the door stayed the current of his thoughts. A lady to see you, sir. Oh, say that I never receive interviewers. Please, sir, I don't think she's that. It's an elderly lady, sir, and she says her business is quite private. One must pay the penalty of greatness. Show her in then, Mary. Half a minute later, a little elderly lady filled the doorway seemingly too timid to advance further. Smith smilingly waved her forward and bowed. His visitor had on a black poke bonnet, cotton gloves, 
and at her side swung a reticule. She belonged to the fashions of yesterday and was labelled provincial. He did not feel in the least afraid of her. Uh, excuse me, she stammered, but I fancy the servant has made some mistake. I think it is your wife that I wish to see. Madam, I have no wife. I am a bachelor. Oh, I beg your pardon. Then it must be a... Here she caught sight of a copy of Puppets at Large, ostentatiously displayed upon the table. It's the author of that book, I mean. He summed up in a look her apparent simplicity and innocence. Can you keep secret, madam? Oh, yes. Well, then I, and he tapped his shirt front, have adopted for literary purposes only the nom de plume of Caroline Wickham. She stared at him stupefied, and he hurriedly slid forward a chair lest she should fall. You? Caroline Wickham? By adoption only, of course. And now, whom have I the pleasure of addressing? My name is... Oh, I hope it's not going to give you a shock, sir. Caroline Wickham. He was shocked, and he showed it. Suppressing a tendency to giggle, he stared at her dumbfounded. Her eyes never fell before his intent gaze. He realised with a sense of horror that she must be speaking the truth. When, out of the chaotic world of nomenclature, he invoked Caroline Wickham into being, he ought to have reflected that at some point in the universe there possibly existed a small, dowdy, elderly lady whose rightful designation it was. The woman before him answered to the name to the life. As one's eyes roved over her face in person, one's lips involuntarily murmured, Caroline Wickham, Caroline Wickham. I am really very sorry, he began lamely. She sniffed, and he began to feel alarmed. With a young lady in tears, a man knows how to deal. What is the proper order of procedure with a woman of fifty? I wonder what made you choose my name. It was an unlucky inspiration. It's an extremely nice name, of course, but you have a right to it, not I. Is it possible that you can have seen a prospectus of mine? Prospectus? She produced from her reticule a much-folded document and straightened it out for him to read. It held forth the supreme educational advantages of a seminary for young ladies at Littlesea, presided over by Miss Wickham, B.A., etc., etc. No, he said, I had not even that excuse. And so you keep a school? An academy for young ladies, yes. And it's most trying. Girls often are. I'm not a family man myself, but... I didn't mean that, Mr. Did you tell me your real name? Smith. Mr. Smith. It's most trying for you to have taken my name. I woke up in a day to find myself infamous. Famous, I hope you were going to say. She killed that mild pleasantry of his at his birth. Your fame is my shame. Almost the whole of Littlesea believes that I wrote Puppets at Large and I am being boycotted in consequence. The reputation of my academy is going and my pupils are going with it. 
Do you suppose that the education of tender young plants can be entrusted to the care of a woman who is thought to have written a problem novel? Oh, if you wanted to choose my name, why did you put it on a book of that description? But, my dear madam, it's a most harmless production, when you see the true purpose of it. Yes, but little sea people don't. Well, then, isn't it sufficient for you to deny the authorship? I have, but hardly a soul believes me. I have a letter here. Her hand dived again into her reticule. That will just show you how I am being used. It's from Mr Blakely, who is church warden at our church. Please read it for yourself. The church warden wrote very forcibly, for a church warden. With one hand, he was withdrawing at a minute's notice his two daughters from Miss Wickham's select academy. With the other, he committed puppets at large to the flames. This is most distressing, said Smith in a perplexed voice. It has really been most disastrous for me, Mr Smith, and I confess I don't see the end of it. Caroline Wickham had launched him into fame, a fame that would not turn back. Need he sail under false colours any longer? Might not his revelation as John Smith prove at this juncture a novel and most excellent advertisement? The dear British public would take him now to its heart and see what a fine old English name he had. I will make you the only reparation that lies in my power. I shall give up the secret of Caroline Wickham and write letters to all the papers to that effect. Oh, that is most good of you, but... Well? <laughs> I don't like to mention it because you're acting so nobly, but there is something else. Believe me, it's only pure necessity that makes me refer to it. This boycotting has been most disastrous to me financially. Of course, it will cease after your letter appears. But just at present, well, if I only had the last quarter's rent that ought to have been paid some days ago, I'm sure I could manage. How much, Miss Wickham? Only ten guineas. Ten pound ten. But I couldn't think of asking you. He produced, with one movement of his right hand, the cheque-book that the successful author always has in readiness in his breast pocket, and wrote out a cheque for the amount. Leave it open, please, she suggested timidly. Not crossed, certainly. There. How can I thank you? There was again the imminent danger of tears. Don't mention it, a mere trifle, I assure you. And when she was gone, he added, Joe, that was cheap at the price. A year later, John Smith, the celebrated author of Puppets at Large and of a subsequent novel, A Suffragette in Harness, was deputed by a certain editor to revive in print the faded glories of a number of watering places. And amongst these, upon which he was to bring his picturesque pen to bear, figured Littlesea. He went down to do his duty by Little C. When the article was posted, he found that he had two hours to spare before taking the train for the next holiday resort on that rigid editorial list. He had noticed Miss Wickham's select academy for young ladies in his peregrination of the place. Could he pass the time better than by renewing his acquaintance with that interesting old lady? First, however, he made a few judicious inquiries round the shops, 
and reconnoitred the academy from the opposite side of the road. Only when he was assured that he would not be required to part with another ten guineas did he venture to ring the bell. It was quite evident that Miss Wickham's establishment was booming. He inquired for Miss Wickham and awaited her advent in an artistically furnished drawing room. How pleasant if he were to hear that his ten guineas had opportunely plucked the seminary as a brand from the burning. He was taken aback by the abrupt entry of a good-looking lady who might be half Miss Wickham's age. Good morning, she said. Good morning. I came to see Miss Wickham. I am Miss Wickham? Then it must be your sister I've met. I've no sister. Your aunt, perhaps? I have no aunt here. She was regarding him suspiciously. He was clearly not the father of a prospective pupil, and his crude attempt to claim intimacy with the family indicated that he had come to Beck. Well, I don't know what relation she may be to you, but her name is Caroline Wickham, and she did keep this school. I keep this school. I and my partner, Miss Moser. My name is Alice. There is no Caroline, nor ever has been in our family. Please state your business. But Miss Wickham from this school came to me a year ago and... In spite of the chilling reception, he launched into his story. Gradually, the signs of impatience vanished. Now she was listening with parted lips. What was the woman like? He described her. Why... That must have been old Mrs. Renton. Who? Mrs. Renton, my matron, whom I had just dismissed for dishonesty. Oh, what an artful plot. Why, there is no Blakely in Littlesey. And you gave her money because she made out that she was Caroline Wickham. Oh, the wicked old thing to have taken you in like that. Miss Moser, Miss Moser. And she disappeared. It was an excuse to hide her laughter. There, the story should artistically end, but a postscript must be forgiven. It is Miss Moses' Academy for Young Ladies now. Last month, her late partner became Mrs John Smith and thinks it is the sweetest and most magnificent name in the world. People still maintain that John Smith, the novelist, intentionally borrowed his future wife's surname for his first novel and that, disguised in her cloak, he scaled the walls of fame. Now they will be better informed. A safety net. Pauline Jones from Birmingham joined her local branch of the Odd Fellows in September 2019 as part of its annual Friendship Month celebrations. And from her very first coffee morning, she knew she would be coming back. Although walking into a room full of people she didn't know was a little intimidating, the welcome 75-year-old Pauline received soon put her at ease. The group has become her safety net, with members checking in on her over the lockdown period and making sure she never once felt lonely or forgotten. That's the sort of friendship and support the Oddfellows has championed for more than two centuries. With in-person social events on hold at the moment, the Society is providing its members with a wide range of online events to enjoy from the comfort of home. If you're thinking of becoming a member, visit oddfellows.co.uk or call 0800 028 1810 today for a free information pack. Now, let me top up my tea 
grab some of my friends, and we'll have that wee chat about the story you've just heard. Before the break, we heard Caroline Wickham by Herbert Jameson, which was first published in The People's Friend in April 1910. That story was read for us by Marion from the Features team, who joins me now. Hello, Marion. Hello. I'm also joined by Tracy from the Friend Fiction team. Hello, Tracy. Hi, Ian. And also Barry from the DC Thompson Archives, who doesn't get a surname. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Barry. Hi. So, Caroline Wickham. I think we all agree it's a cracker, in the words of 1980s celebrities. <laughs> we'll probably start with uh, the question that, that's on everybody's lips. Would this story be published in the magazine today? I would think it would make an excellent page story in one of our specials. I really enjoyed it. And as I said to you, Ian, it reminded me of an episode of Tales of the Unexpected, which you didn't know and made me feel 175 years old. <laughs> but um, I thought it was a great wee story. I am ashamed. I am ashamed of my lack of knowledge. And if you don't use that as an opportunity to bring in the theme song from <laughs> Tales of the Unexpected McDonald, you have missed your calling. <laughs> it's such a brilliant theme. Uh, if, if the three of you would like to do a rendition of it, I think that would probably get around <laughs> some rights issues. <laughs> It it really would only be possible for a podcast, certainly not. It wouldn't be very visually appealing. (laughs) So this particular tale of the unexpected, uh, the the thing that stood out to me about it is this is about an author, uh, a a chap named John, who assumes a female nom de plume to write a novel because he feels like uh, people aren't going to care unless he has this, this other identity. But then later in the story, he he divests himself of the identity altogether, and then absolutely nothing bad happens. <laughs> it's a shame because you know we we still get um, queries on the fiction desk from male authors asking if they need to have a, a female pen name, and of course they don't at all. Um, we have a number of male authors, and it's it's not a problem. But I can understand maybe their hesitancy of submitting under their own name, but it really certainly doesn't make any difference to us at all. But it's an interesting idea for the time, isn't it? Because back then, he's right, was females who were taking on male names in order to get published. And that really was turning it on its head for the day. Yeah. It's funny to think that men in the People's Friends suddenly felt at some point, and I don't know what time that would have happened in the People's Friends history, but we went from being predominantly male authors back when Herbert was writing into predominantly female authors and the men writing into you to say, do I need to be called Janice in order to get published in The People's Friend? The trouble is we don't really know who was who. I mean, Herbert Jameson um, was, by the looks of it, a fairly prolific short story writer at that period. Now, whether that was the real name, I have no idea. But you know you can go through pr- practically any of the, the friend from that period and, and beyond and before, and we have no idea. Some some well known ones, yes, we can we can pick out and say yes, you know the, the serial contributors like Annie S. Swan and um, as Alexander Anderson as Surface Man. Uh, we know who they were, but for a lot of these writers, they may as well have been anonymous. In fact, we have actually encountered 
a male writer who's named himself after a female, although it's not exactly obvious, our old friend A.P. MacDonald is actually named after his wife. Of course. So it's not not exactly without precedent, but it, yeah, it's probably more unusual. Interesting thing about this guy as well, because I liked the story so much, I tried to find out more about the writer. So did a bit of hunting around on the internet, and I don't know if I've got the right person, but somebody called Hubert, Herbert Jameson wrote something called The Modern Woman back in 1899, which was very forward-looking for its time. He was quite the feminist, and it's quoted in a lot of history about women's history. There's several books that quote it approvingly. And you think, well, perhaps this is him actually making a point and saying women shouldn't have to do this. Maybe. Was was it a, definitely a he? Was it definitely a Herbert? Yes. Yeah, it was definitely a Herbert. Interesting, because I see that within the story, we've got this already sort of metafictional arc going on, and there's another level in there as well, uh, towards towards the end where he's come out as John Smith. He's he's written something called Puppets at Large and then A Suffragette in Harness, and this Herbert Jameson actually wrote something not long before this called A Suffragist on Trial the story of a quaint experiment in practical politics, which doesn't suggest feminism to me, but I could be wrong. Um, So it is interesting. There seems to be quite a lot going on there. And just just a a quick point as well, there was actually a book called Puppets at Large that came out in 1897, but it was to do with the Punch and Judy show, as far as I can tell. So absolutely nothing to do with gender politics. (laughs) It doesn't have very good things to say about gender politics if it's based on Punch and Judy. (laughs) No, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But I really enjoyed his story. It reminded me, when I was reading it, a little bit of Jerome K. Jerome and Mm. Three Men in a Boat, that kind of a tone to it. Or maybe sort of very early P.G. Woodhouse. Yes. This kind of comic character coming in and completely sending up your main character. I mean, it starts off so well as well. It just, it wrong-foots the reader right from the first sentence. I had to reread the, you know, Caroline Wickham sat in as well. What? <laughs> what? I know, I was going to send it back to you, Ian, and say there's a misprint in this. <laughs> it's it's ultimately, I mean, the, the way that I had a look at it was, um, it's the, it's, this guy getting sent up, as you say. Yeah. So it's his ego is evident right from the beginning. Uh, even when the the woman comes in to see him, he has a book of press cuttings at his elbow and has the book <laughs> ostentatiously displayed on a coffee table. And you can just imagine him sort of sitting there being all sort of self-satisfied with himself. So self-satisfied with himself? Or we, we're doing tautologies now as well on the <laughs> podcast. Um, and... Then later on, when he gets duped, I found myself laughing out loud at him at the, the reveal, especially actually because he, he'd appeared to be completely terrified of the woman when she came in. Um, he didn't seem to know how to deal with her at all. This elderly woman of 50. <laughs> <laughs> and I love the fact he doesn't know how to console her. <laughs> a, you know, a, a crying girl, that's, that's easy. But a crying woman of 50? Exactly. What on earth do you do with them? <laughs> That did me. I had a quick question about this, though. I mean, what do you think where this story would have gone if Mrs. Renton had walked in and found Caroline Wickham? If, you know, she wouldn't have got any purchase from this, surely, you know, 
is there a suggestion that she knew or suspected that there was an alias? I didn't pick mm. that up. I just no. took it on its terms, I must admit. No, but when you think about it, I mean, if she just discovered a woman called Caroline Wickham, she, could, she couldn't have said, change your name because it's inconveniencing me. No. I mean, end of story. Or maybe she could have asked her to change her name. She could have done. Yeah, the, the professional name. She's very good. She would have got the money out of a woman as well. Mm-hmm. She might have got the money, but I just wondered, um, reading it the second time around, I, I just thought, oh, there's a hint here that this woman has sussed out that there's a, a pen name at play here. It, it's probably a, a, a big mouth at the publishers has let it slip uh, in the pub, no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> J.K. Rowling and Robert Galbraith all over again. <laughs> well, I remember um, many years ago, one of my jobs before I came on to The Friend was serialising books for The Courier. Dundee Courier and a series of books I had to do was very much they were like friend stories they were set in the early 1900s and you know women that wore shawls and struggled and and, in the sort of Catherine Cookson vein and they were brilliant they were really popular and I won't name the author but it was um, a, a lovely lady's name but as it turned out the author is a big farmer from Fife male oh really and he just loved writing that particular genre of book. And he, he was a very talented writer. And these stories were fabulous. Can we give it away? Can we can we generate some scandal? I'm not sure. No, I think we'd have to uh, we'd have to get permission. You know what will happen is a large farmer from Fife will come round and visit you <laughs> with a threshing <laughs> machine, I think. <laughs> Nobody wants that. <laughs> so what I'm interested in is is it the writer themselves on the magazine that sort of cultivates this culture of anonymity? It's an interesting question. In the instance I'm thinking of with our short story writer, it was because in their professional life, that wouldn't have been compatible with writing stories in the people's friend as far as they saw it. But in terms of anonymity, it's only very, very recently that any of the staff on the magazine have had bylines themselves. That's interesting. Definitely only since I came that we've even named the editor, let alone any of us if we write stories or features for the magazine. There always was very much an identity of the friend as an entity, and it was the personality of the friend that you were putting forward. This is all leading to us um, deciding between ourselves what our friend read, uh, writer's names would be. <laughs> yes, indeed. M I think mine would be Dusty Books. <laughs> we actually had them, Tracy and I, didn't we? Can you reveal your pseudonyms if they are not in, if you've not been in print for a while? Well, I didn't actually have a pen name because I didn't write features. So, oh, did you not have one? Nope, nothing to hide here. <laughs> Well, back in the day, and it changed quite soon after I came on board to The People's Friend, but I did publish one or two features under the name Kate McSherry. So if you see those, that's actually me. Okay, but I mean, that's as interesting as that is. Why Why did you do that? Why, why were you encouraged to have a pseudonym rather than your own name? It was because, and Angela would express this much better than I would, the people's friend was the important thing, not the identity of the people working on it. And it was felt for a very long time that if readers 
knew even the identities of the people working on it, it would somehow take away from their bond with the friend. I'm not sure that's true anymore because social media has changed an awful lot of things. And I think they bond now with the team as well as the title. So it's not as necessary these days. Yep. I I think as well, certainly I've been um, at DC Thompson's a number of years and worked on various titles a teenage up and your name would never have gone in no matter what you did um and i think that wasn't just a friend thing it, it was just a general idea it was definitely part of the dc thompson culture we see it like you say up until fairly recently in all titles and it's an absolute nightmare when we get people writing in and saying my dad used to write for can you send me some stories and well no unless unless they were a columnist or um, a celebrity almost, it's kind of hard to pin down. And that's, which is bad enough, but when you start adding pseudonyms in there, the copyright hassles that causes us when, you know, we're not sure who's who. I do find that doing the, um, managing the social media stuff um, and the website, that people are much more interested in who the team are now. Yeah. Um, and I've had people actually get in touch with me to say, um, can you list articles on the website by author? Because I really like reading things by X, Y, or Z person, uh, and I want to find them. It is an interesting thing. They're they're definitely they're happy to hear from the the readers are happy to hear from people specifically, particularly Angela, obviously, but um, also. You know, Lucy as fiction editor and Alex as features editor, they, they feel like it's not just an anonymous friend as it might be in the way that we're speaking here. It's kind of like, you know, a member of the family almost. And it is only fairly recently that Angela was Angela because we, in the build up to the 150th, a couple of years ago, we tied ourselves in knots trying to figure out how many editors the people's friend actually had because they were always just the editor or Ed. No, it's usually the editor. You had a bit more gravitas than the, the comics comics editors, but uh, it, is, it is quite difficult to untangle. You're still untangling, aren't you? Um, I think one of my colleagues has found another one, believe it or not. Yeah. We keep getting tantalisingly close to getting a scoop on this episode, and then you just keep pulling it away from it. <laughs> <laughs> so to briefly bring it back to Caroline Wickham, the question I wanted to ask everybody was, did you see the swindle coming? And if you didn't see the swindle coming, is it because she was an ancient woman of 50 <laughs> and therefore <laughs> trustworthy in some way? I, do you know what? I didn't see it coming, to be honest with you. I thought there was something afoot, but nothing as um, devious, shall we say. Um, but it was, a, it was a corker of a read. I really enjoyed it. I, I, I do like the fact that she seemed to have gotten away with that completely, Mrs. Renton. Um, yeah, I thought it was a bit of a, an open-ended one. It was quite an interesting way to leave that. Yeah, that's very unlike the friend, actually, isn't it? To leave wrongdoing unpunished like that. But I must admit, I did start laughing when she asked him to leave the cheque uncrossed. You know, aye, aye. <laughs> <laughs> You've been had, mate. Undoubtedly. It seems a strange place to leave it with someone riding off into the sunset with their ill-gotten gains, but I think that's exactly what we're going to do. Um, so it just remains for me to say thank you to Marion for your wonderful story reading. Thank you, Tracy and Barry, for joining us as well. And thank you at home for listening. 
until this wee group of friends gets together again for another story from the friend to you cheerio thanks again for joining us for this episode of reading between the lines subscribe in your podcast app today so you don't miss our next story and check our previous episodes for more from the friend archives we'd be delighted if you were to recommend this podcast to your friends if you don't already get the people's friend because you listen to reading between the lines you can now get your first 13 issues for just eight pounds and that special offer is available until the 31st of may 2021 check the episode notes for details and terms and for more from the people's friend visit thepeoplesfriend.co.uk or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Haste you back. There's a dainty little journal that has read both far and near. It has had a host of rivals, still it stands without a peer. It is bright and entertaining from the first page to the end and is known to its admirers as the dear old people's friend. A charming little journal is the friend Of good things it is such a happy blend That to read it at your leisure is a pleasure without measure The friend to friends in trouble recommend They won't be happy till they get the friend